the following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff and I'm your host for the podcast. I'm also the Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the seminary. So if you'd like to support the school or learn how to, go to gpts.edu slash donate. If you'd like to apply to study with us, go to gpts.edu slash admissions. On this edition of Confessing Our Hope, I have with me in the studio Dr. Joseph A. Piper, President of the seminary. Dr. Piper, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Zach. It's good to be here as always. Dr. Piper and I are sitting down to address some questions from our listeners. This is um, a regular segment of ours. It's more or less monthly, particularly during the school year. We try to do it every month. And we have quite the array of questions before us, many dealing with denominational issues and with tithing and the Sabbath and, uh, and some other hot-button issues in the Reformed world today. But before we dive into the questions, Dr. Piper, would you please open us with a word of prayer? I will. Almighty God, indeed you are great and glorious, the creator of the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But above all, you are the God of the covenant who has chosen us, redeemed us, called us unto yourself, and dwelt us by your Spirit, that you have justified us, adopted us, you're working to transform us, Lord, and you're going to keep us under glory. We thank you. We thank you that you are the God of all truth, that you've given us a true word and the spirit then to open this word to us. We ask that today that we'll not think or answer questions in our own strength, but in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. For Christ's sake, amen. Amen. For our first question before us, we're diving deep into Trinitarian theology, and we have to thanks for that questioner or inquirer here, David Burchard of San Diego, California. And David asks, I'm trying to think well through the ESS controversy that stands for Eternal Subordination of the Son controversy. It has been put forward for my consideration that it is proper to identify the truth of begetter, begotten, proceeded as a matter of hypostatic subordination, distinct from economic or essential subordination. How should I think about that proposition? Is Lethem a trustworthy teacher on the subject? How should I think about the covenant of redemption in light of the ESS controversy and the above question of hypostatic subordination? Who should I read on these matters? He's shared with us a couple of articles from uh, the Founders Ministry out of the Southern Baptist Convention. We won't um, you know, share or debrief on those, but Dr. Piper, with regards to his actual questions in this distinction of hypostatic subordination distinguished from economic or essential subordination, how do we wrestle with these things? All right, Zach. Well, hypostatic subordination means that the person of the second person of the Godhead is uh, eternally subordinate to the Father. Uh, this whole discussion has grown out of uh, the current discussions of uh, male headship, uh, Paul's remarks in Timothy about uh, the man, woman subject to the man, to man, to Christ, Christ to, to God. And there's just been a lot of confusion that is quite unnecessary. Now, let me just, who should you read? Any of the classic Reformed theologians. I just, I'm editing volume 10 of the Perkins Republication for Reformation Heritage Public Publish publications, and uh, he has a very succinct discussion in there in volume 10 
on um, eternal equality of uh, the three persons. Um, there is no subordination in the Godhead, as the Catechism so clearly says, that uh, one God uh, in three persons, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Now, the Nicene formula that the Father is of none, the Son is begotten, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son did not, in its original formulation, have anything to do with subordination. That would have been, frankly, quite stupid, since they were arguing against the subordination of the Son uh, to the Father. There are two ways that that formula has been under have two ways have been understood um, in the history of of the discussion, and one is that eternally the Son uh, received his existence from the Father, and eternally the Father, uh, the Spirit proceeded from the Father and the Son. That's very traditional. There's no subordination involved in that whatsoever. Uh, Calvin brought a bit of a different uh, approach to it that I appreciate and follow, and that's only in their personal um, characteristics does this take place. So the three are eternally uh, the three persons of the Godhead. But the Son received his personal attributes of Son by being begotten of the Father in that person, personal attributes, and the Spirit proceeding from them. This then applies to what the questioner refers to as the economic trinity. So the trinity at work uh, each has a distinct role, and that role is consistent with the personal attribute, or property is a better word, personal property of each one. But in whatever the work, all three are always involved because they are one and you cannot separate uh, them in that manner. Now, when we come to talk about what the question refers to is the uh, covenant of redemption, this has to do with the eternal um, agreement between the triune God and God the Son and prospect of his incarnation. It's been understood in two ways, either a separate transaction, a covenant transaction between the Trinity and the Son uh, that uh, the qualifications were laid down in terms that Christ would obey the law of God perfectly and offer his life as a sacrifice for sin. Uh, the Father, through the Spirit, would prepare a body for him. The Spirit would anoint him. The Father would uh, reward him, as we read in Isaiah 53. Um, and then on the basis of that covenant transaction, God then chose in Christ those uh, for whom uh, he would act when he came as mediator to earth. Uh, a little later, um, in Holland and in Scotland, the process was refined a bit by saying, yes, it's an eternal transaction, but it is uh, that God made the covenant of grace with God the Son. So the triune God made the covenant of grace with God the Son in prospect of his incarnation, and we then were chosen in him. Now, at the end of the day, the agreement's the same. 
The Father promised certain things, required certain things. The Son committed to do those things. The Spirit committed to his role in those things. That became the basis of our uh, redemption and now the application of it to us. But it means there's but one covenant. So there's a covenant of works and there's a covenant of grace. The Before I come back to that, let me just say that there's a third option, and that is that Smith, Huxma, and some others like them don't like to use the word of an intertrinitarian covenant. And so they refer to the pactum or the council of peace. And so that in eternity there was this agreement of what each person was going to do and were chosen in Christ on the basis of that. So in the day, uh, any of them are fine. None of them, though, uh, think of a subordination within the essence um, or the ontological, the essential uh, trinity. Uh, the larger catechism, though, does say that the covenant of grace is made with Christ and is elect in him. And so I, I lean that way, that the covenant of grace was made between the triune God, Christ and prospect of his incarnation, and the elect who were chosen in him. Some people that take that position still refer to the covenant of redemption as simply phase one of the covenant of grace. So at the end of the day, I don't see a lot of, of difference. Um, we recognize then when Christ on earth is in subordination to the Father, it's as the God-man. And as the God-man, he has this role to fulfill, and he fulfills it. But interestingly, think what he says in Matthew chapter 11 that no one knows the Father but the Son, no one knows the Son but the Father. He there claims exclusive omniscience with the Father, a mutual knowledge. And this thing, thing, same thing is declared for the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8. Thank you, Dr. Piper. This is an ongoing conversation in conservative evangelical circles. And, um, and I think that the conversation itself and the debate really highlights the importance of being historically grounded and being in conversation with the church through all ages. It doesn't mean we're beholden to tradition. No, we always test everything by Scripture. But as soon as we get out of that conversation and seek to be overly innovative in our theology, uh, we can very quickly get into choppy waters. And so I, I appreciate the, the spirit in which the question was asked of, of what sources can we go to and some of the recommendations that Dr. Piper had. If you have follow-up questions about this issue, please send it to us. There is more to be said about this. Who can plumb the depths of the mysteries of our God? Our next question comes from Caleb Shea of Bloomington, Minnesota, and Caleb says, Recently, I have noticed several Reformed theologians endorsing, quote, thin complementarianism, end quote, a view which circumscribes gender roles and distinctions merely to the church and the family. While I am thankful for their commitment to the scriptures, I think you will agree that the unity of creation requires that male and female distinctions cannot be limited to these two spheres. That said, how should we think about gender roles and distinctions outside of the church and family, all the while continuing to remain within the bounds of scripture? If you have resources to recommend regarding this issue, please mention them. Thank you, Caleb. And Zach and I have listened to uh, at least one of these uh, podcasts on a recent trip together. And I'm sure that even the idea of thin complementarianism will probably embrace a, a various uh, opinions. A spectrum of views. Spectrum. I think what I want to say positively is, is that uh, in marriage and the church, the scripture is quite clear. The husband is the head and men are to be head in the church, not all men. There's even a difference there. But those to whom God would give that church authority are men who have specific qualifications. And in the home, 
and in the family. And we listened to one podcast that seemed to take somebody to task for talking about headship and not the other parts of marriage. Well, that, that was just that wasn't the purpose of what the man was was doing. That headship does not rule out um, partnership, which is clearly established in Genesis. Helper made corresponding to Adam's needs. Uh, doesn't take out the playfulness, anything of that part of of marriage, and we don't want to caricature people's positions. Now, I, I want to butt in here at this point, because this is such an important point. Whenever you're looking at somebody's writing or somebody's words, it is so important to make sure you keep in mind what they're precisely speaking to, because we can so quickly take them out of the question that they're answering and take what they say and apply it to something that they themselves wouldn't apply it to. Correct. And so it's so important to take people on their own terms and to address the questions that they're addressing, even when we're critiquing them or when we're uh, when we're addressing what they say. And, and I hope for for our own listeners and those who hear our podcasts that they don't take what we say out of context and make everything we say absolute, rather than uh, in particular reference to particular questions. Good. Now let me address some of the uh, orbiting uh, things here. Then. One is, this whole question is, uh, do these gender relations uh, rule out uh, a man and a woman married to other people, uh, yet themselves having a close friendship where they could do things together privately? Well, maybe the gender distinctions don't rule it out, but biblical common sense rules it out. Um I learned that lesson the hard way, and I just think that uh, if if we have a, a a single lady that is a friend, she's a friend of my wife and me, and I would never do something with her alone. Uh, and the same then for my wife uh, and uh, a single man, or even the, even the married man. We have very close married friends, but normally, you know, we're going to do things together. Are the women with women and the men with the men? That is wise. Um, I think to ignore that is uh, just playing with fire. It is a certain hubris that I'm above uh, these types of uh, temptations. And I think it violates marriage, the exclusivity of uh, that marriage relationship. Now, another area for me is pretty easy, and that is I think the Bible is clear that women should not be involved in combat. Um you know, you insult a people, or God pronounces judgment when he says they're warriors to be like women. Well, that has truth to it. Um, pagans have put women in those positions. It's The Jews put women in that position, or Israel does. But um, historically, Western biblical ethic has not done that. And we can't use cases like uh, the lady that uh, put the tent peg through the guy's head. Um, yeah, that wasn't a war. That was uh, assassination. <laughs> anyway, it was in war, so it was not assassination. It was fine to do. But women are not uh, uh, to be to be put in those relationships of, of war. Plus, you think of what uh, happens to a female captive. Uh, we know what, say, the Islamic terrorist groups do to female captives. Not pleasant. They do heinous, unpleasant things to male captives as well. But even just, we, we had this discussion in an undergraduate class of mine at a secular university, and 
And even while we were talking about it, I thought, you know, there's just something different about this. I mean, there it's, is. it's a gut feeling, and then you can articulate it, uh, you know, on metaphysical presuppositions. So are fathers protectors, not just of their wives, but of their daughters? Yes. Is there a woman alive that doesn't have a father? Maybe he was a real scumbag uh, in our society. Unfortunately, that's a bit more common. But the father still is to be the protector. So according to God, uh, he, has, he has created the woman to be under um, a, a protector. See this in Numbers 30 then, when a woman marries and she moves from her father's protection to her husband's protection. Now where it gets difficult is in the business world. I don't have a text of scripture that allows me to say that a woman should not be in high up management or in high stress or high pressure jobs. Um, but we do have to realize, and I think Caleb uses the name of uh, concept of gender uh, distinctions. Let's talk about sexual distinctions rather than gender distinctions. That men and women have different physical and mental and emotional makeups, and uh, there are general patterns that should be observed. That a woman to succeed in the high pressure areas. Oftentimes, now I'm not absolutizing this, has to give up a proper femininity in order to succeed or put herself through enormous physical and uh, uh, personal stress. Uh, these are things that um, I think are not wise. So, again, this is more for us who are fathers. I would tell my daughter, what I told my daughter, would tell my granddaughters that, um, yeah, you can do anything you wanted to do, but it seems to me that, uh, first off, do you want to be married? Yes, I want to be married. Well, then I think it's good to have a, uh, a vocational backup. Your husband could die, um, be disabled, or unfortunately, even divorce you. Uh, but the avenues at that point that are more consistent with femininity are teaching, uh, health care, uh, those types of activities that don't defeminize a woman but actually play off her strengths. So I can't tell a young lady in the church that she shouldn't go to law school, um, but I would try to get her to think about what her long-range goals were. And do you want to spend that kind of money uh, and maybe get married to have a family. Uh, there was one young lady that had was by that point about engaged, and she was entering into a uh, physical therapy program that was going to leave her like $60,000 in debt. So my question to the couple was, uh, when you get married and have children, is she going to be a stay-at-home mom or is she going to keep working? Oh, of course she's going to be a stay-at-home mom. Then how are you going to pay back this debt? Uh, you're going to strap yourselves with $60,000 of debt with the goal of being a stay-at-home mom. So we have to weigh all those kind of things as well. So it's more involved here than gender roles, um, but it is important to keep in mind that God has created us a certain way, and I think we're happier when we, uh, we seek to our vocations in terms of those things as well. 
at the end of the day, it's not merely about the power dynamics in relationships. It actually gets down to what makes men men and what makes women right. women as such. And there's more that can be said about that. Again, this is an ongoing hot button issue. There are books being published right now on all sides of uh, of the issue, and they're worth engaging in. And, and we're glad with. to hear back from you as well. Yes, please. or from people who don't agree with us. That's fine. That never is threatening. Yeah, send in follow up questions. Our next uh, our next lineup of questions here on this podcast come uh, in regarding denominational issues. Uh, an anonymous questioner from Mississippi asks um, regarding the PCA General Assembly, what will be the most likely outcome of the review of Presbytery Records citation of Calvary Presbytery and others at this point for restricting the teaching of non-confessional views? Will this recurring issue turn make way for a more focused debate on confessional subscription in the PCA? All right. uh, Thank you, Anonymous. Let me define some terms first. Of course, I think PCA is the Presbyterian Church General Assembly. That's the highest uh, body of the church in Presbyterianism. So we have local churches, we have geographical presbyteries, and then we have the General Assembly. At at each next level court has a responsibility to review the work of those under them. So annually, the Presbytery looks at the minutes of each session in its geographical boundaries to be sure that the session acted consistent with uh, the Scripture's and the Constitution, and then cite a church that didn't do so. Similarly, the General Assembly annually uh, looks at the minutes now of the 88 presbyteries for the same reasons that the Presbytery Act consistent with our Constitution. Now, in the PCA, a second definition, we have uh, what's called subscription. The ordination vow is that I hold that the Westminster Confessions uh, are the system of truth taught in Scripture. That's been understood historically that a man must believe every doctrine in the confession. Now, there could be nuances, how it is expressed, exegetical differences, but every doctrine. A few years ago, the Presbyterian Church in America adopted what's called good faith subscription. There's nothing good or faithful about good faith subscription. It's actually unethical. Let me give you a hypothetical issue. So we've got a person coming in. One of the things we see are taking exceptions about the Sabbath. Now, Presbyteries are allowing this exception to be taken and allowing men to take it. Now, you've taken this exception, and five more men in your Presbytery have taken the exception. You let people in the Presbytery, what you will have done in a fairly brief period of time is amend the confession of faith without going through the rigor of exegetical uh, examination and debate. And that's wrong. And that's what's happening. Uh, and so it's not ethical, and it's relative, relativistic, I mean. And, and by that is that a man in my presbytery could not be accepted or couldn't teach things that another presbytery would allow him to teach. And so now you have a minister of transfer from presbytery A to presbytery B, and one presbytery is more strict than the other, and you've got chaos. And so chaos the result as well. And it's not just a matter of one presbytery being more strict than others. It could also be just presbyteries have different standards, and they're all equally strict on their own standards. No. no. Well, what I'm saying is there are certain presbyteries that will give you a hard time if you don't have an exception. 
And so they but that's have, not strict. That's just it's, it's strict on a different standard, a goofy standard. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so now, Calvary Presbytery, which is here in upstate North South Carolina, uh, a number of times when a man is taken, oh, and then these exceptions are, are weighted. There's four categories. No exceptions, exceptions that are really minimal and don't mean anything, which we would call a scruple. Acceptance that are acceptance of substance but don't strike against the vitals, in other words, the integrity of the standards, and then exceptions that do strike against the vitals and take the standards. Now, the fourth category, a man may not teach it and may often not be admitted, shouldn't be admitted into the presbytery. It's that next category. It is an exception if it doesn't strike the vitals that uh, some more conservative presbyteries have then told a man, you may not teach that which is simply biblical common sense again, isn't it? This is the church's, it's not my confession, it's the church's confession. So I'm going to let you in, not agree with the church's confession, but that doesn't mean I should be allowing you to teach it. There's actually been judicial cases at the PCA General Assembly that have upheld the Presbytery's right to do that, such as Calvary Presbytery, which has said that a man that hold to a deviant view of creation couldn't teach or preach that view publicly. So... The PCA Assembly a year ago this past June cited Calvary Presbytery uh, for telling a man he could not teach his exception. And we answered why we had the right to do so, which they rejected. And then we have a second case that has, has come up. Now, what's going to occur? I think nothing. I think that will answer exactly in the same way. And Lord willing, the assembly will uphold us. But the second part of your question I wish were true. Will this recurring issue um, make way for a more focused debate on confessional subscription in the PCA? I'm afraid we're past that point. We've had this other system for too long. The whole progressive party in the PCA is very loose on their uh, approach to the standards. And that's what they want the denomination to be. And so it's, it's a, I think subscription is going to be the battle for the denomination. I think you're right. What practical advice would you give to a layman in the PCA who aspires to the office of ruling elder? It is true that a man uh, may and often will aspire to the office other times, the session might go to a man and say, we think you have gifts and we want you to do that. And eventually, as he works with them, he begins to get the desire for office. But if you have the desire for office, uh, you should let your elders know and ask them to test you. Help them to determine with you, are there areas uh, in your life where you need to focus more on uh, meeting the qualifications of an elder and develop your gifts? So it can be a, a, should be a, a mentoring process with the current session, and um, they should help you then evaluate where you are. And then, uh, Lord willing, the congregation or somebody in the congregation will see your growth in that area and nominate you and you go through the training process. Thank you for the question, 
We do have some resources here in the seminary bookstore that um, if you're interested in, in looking at those, perusing them a bit, go to gpts.edu slash shop. You'll see some hard to find books that would be very useful to any man aspiring to the office of elder or um, who seeking to explore an inward sense of call to the ministry even. We have a few questions here from a variety of listeners, all of whom submitted anonymously or without their names attached, uh, regarding the PCA General Assembly and additional follow-up questions. A couple episodes ago, Dr. Piper and I dedicated an entire uh, segment or entire episode of Faith and Practice to just a denominational debrief of the General Assembly this year. But these are some other questions a bit out on the periphery from some of the hot-button issues or um, a little bit more general but still flowing out of the General Assembly. The first is regarding Romans 1. And the listener asked or says, I'd like to hear discussion on Romans 1 as it pertains to same-sex attraction. Doesn't Romans 1 indicate that certain men and women are given over to these vile passions rather than being born with them or somehow, quote, discovering, end quote, them within them one day? Very good. Uh, In Romans 1, the passage to which the uh, questioner is uh, referring Paul is talking about uh, God's wrath against uh, the culture and men suppressing uh, the truth of God. And so they have exchanged the glory of the incorruptible for an image in the form of corruptible man, birds, four-footed animals, crawling, crawling creatures. Now because of that, they made that change. God therefore gave them over to, in the lust of their hearts, to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function. It's a very important word that's been skipped over here. There's a natural function for the woman, for that which is unnatural. In the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. So what we see here in the first place is the unnaturalness of sodomy. And I've been convinced that we should go back and use the biblical terminology and not uh, tone things down with homosexuality or gay the Bible calls it sodomy. You know, we're, whoever defines the vocabulary is, is going to control the conversation. We've said that before in the podcast. Yep. So it's sodomy, and it is uh, what God gives people over to because of their idolatry, and the passions themselves are degrading, so that the, the lust itself is a, is a degradation. And they burn in their desire. Now, that burning in their desire doesn't mean that they would give in to that desire. It's the burning with desire and the degraded passion uh, that is the root. And we must never forget that Christ's whole approach to obedience is the heart. Uh, To lust for women is to commit adultery. To hate or be angry unnecessarily is to commit murder. Any form of lust is... Um, for a, a, another person, a sexual lust for anyone besides your spouse, a man for a woman, a woman for a man, is sin. Now, it's, heterosexual lust is sin. 
even if one does not act on that lust. Sodomite lust is sin in its reality. Uh, and uh, is unnatural, according to Paul's language here. And there's all kinds of ways they try to get around this. Well, he's talking here about promiscuous or whatever. But, uh, you know, Paul's only building here on Leviticus chapter 18, what the Bible's already said about sodomy. And then as to the gay, one of the other questions is, is there such a thing as a gay Christian? And I think Paul answers this question quite clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where he has dealt with the lust of the flesh and, and spelling out the lust of the flesh. He says, The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Now the fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. Now Paul knew homosexual or sodomy culture. And so he's taking here both the male and uh, taking two sides of the coin, so to speak. Effeminate refers to male, sodomites, homosexuals, nor thieves, etc. But now you come down to verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed, born again, sanctified, definitively set apart in Christ, and justified. So Paul answers the question. None of these people are now known as I'm a fornicating Christian, I am a thieving Christian, I am a drunken Christian. No, such were some of you. And homosexuality is in that catalog. And so Paul himself would say that, no, you do not define yourself by your sin, you define yourself by who you are in Christ Jesus. Now, this is not saying that... Um, these life-dominating sins or these lusts uh, uh, go away overnight. Nor is it saying that a person who's honestly wrestling uh, with lust is to be kept out of the church. So, for example, there might be a person who is a drunk, he's converted, he uh, uh, makes a profession of faith, and uh, he might a few times fall back into drunkenness. I have a friend that that's happened to, and uh, um, and yet he's growing, and the church is patient with him. They don't discipline him at that point. They know that he's he's wrestling honestly with these things. Or pornography would be another one that uh, it's God sometimes takes away these things immediately in, in His sovereignty. Sometimes He doesn't. So it can be true of uh, of of a, a lust, homosexual lust, that it's sin. You'll never deal with it if you just say, it's who I am. Uh, no, if it's sin, then there's hope. If it's sin, there's great promises about sanctification. And to say then that God is the one that made me this way is basically saying that, that God's a cruel God. So that God made you um, with integrity to have homosexual lust and yet has forbid you to uh, act out of them. That's cruel. That's cruel. I mean, we have lust for the other sex because God gave us the avenue that he's designed to, to do that. All right, Zach, which ones do we want to go on this under uh, the follow-up? With that question was, how can single adults in Napark congregations serve the church in today's America? That's a great 
It's a very good question, and church sometimes is not as sensitive uh, to the singles in the congregation. Paul says that singles have uh, more uh, talent, resources, time to devote to the church than married people do, and the church then needs to be enlisting them according to their gifts. Church needs to be aware of, of the giftedness of each person and use them according to their gifts and be aggressive in doing so. It seems pretty obvious to me, you know, having once been single and now being married, having once not had children and now having children, I can testify that I was once much more available than I am today. <laughs> Moving into another follow-up question, um, and, and this is something that we've touched on in the past, so we can treat it briefly here. How long should churches and presbyteries fight denominational downgrade before they consider leaving the PCA? Well, again, let me preface this by saying that it is... It is a matter of conscience, but there's also a sin of schism. And I know when I left the uh, Southern Church, I had to work through that. Uh, were there sufficient grounds uh, to leave without the church being apostate? I didn't think the Southern Church was apostate then. I think it is now. So I don't think anyone would say that the PCA is apostate, but are there grounds uh, for leaving? Uh, in my opinion, uh, no, they're not grounds yet for leaving. And I've studied this particularly with Owen Perkins and Calvin, uh, who lay out and lived in a situation um, with uh, and Owens and, and Perkins in England with a, an Anglican church that was uh, at times iffy. Calvin, of course, dealing with Romanism. Uh, and they've got very good principles there. And so second thing is General Assembly is not the church in terms of the nitty-gritty. And I tell our students that Reformation is one church at a time, one day at a time. And we put ourselves in our local churches and presbyteries. Now, if the General Assembly clearly contradicted Scripture, ordaining women to church office, saying that uh, uh, there's no sin in same-sex attraction, um, those are the kind of issues that then, I think, press us. But as I've said before, I'm still the advocate of what we did back in 19, uh, early 70s, and that is a convocation of sessions. Here, reasons for leaving, reasons for staying. Here, presentations from those that would want a new church or for those who want to go into an existing denomination and at least take a straw vote. Not that anybody's bound by that, but at least trying to work together. And I, and I think it's time for a convocation of sessions. I'd be happy for that. As a seminary, we can't call for that. No, we're we not, can't. We're not a court of the church, but a congregation or a presbytery can certainly call for that, and it would be helpful. Um, another question here. How can the PCA recommit to faithfulness to 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, in the recognition of teaching elder, ruling elder, and deacons. So this is a familiar passage dealing with the qualifications for ordained office. Um, this is one that the PCA and the OPC and other confessional Presbyterian bodies reference in, in listing the qualifications for office. And it particularly mentions husband of one wife. I think that's probably what the questioner uh, would have in mind. By teaching the scriptures, by helping people understand that uh, we are counterculture, uh, by uh, treating, uh, honoring women and their gifts in the church and in the home, and just with singles, with women, uh, 
letting them exercise their gifts according to the biblical model. When I was pastoring in Houston, uh, there was a that window in about 1983 when the PCUS and the PCUSA were merging. And they were given churches one year uh, to stay or to leave, and if you stayed, then you were in bondage for the rest of your church life. But anyway, there was an evangelical uh, Presbyterian church in Houston, and they asked me to come and present the distinctives of the PCA and, and such. And it's very interesting. When I got into the role of women and what God wants women to do in the church, if women are doing what God wants them to do in the church, as one of those women said, we wouldn't have time to be doing anything else. And they were happy. That church, the women on the session, voted uh, to leave and to come into the PCA. And those women gladly gave up uh, that responsibility. And well, what about the issue here of, of divorcees who have been remarried? You know, this is something that one ruling elder in the PCA has complained to me about. Is He says, everywhere I look, it seems that there are men of great influence who have been through divorces and have been remarried and remain in the office, either as teaching elder or ruling elder, and exercise authority and influence in the courts of the church, da-da-da-da-da. Um, well, shouldn't we be concerned if there is a, a large number of, uh, of men in that situation? Well, the first one, I don't know there's a large number. <laughs> to put it exegetically, husband of one wife has nothing to do with divorce. It has to do with polygamy. As the gospel moves into pagan areas, uh, there are a lot of men are converted that have more than one wife. And uh, the Bible does not tell them to put away their wives, but the Bible does say they can't serve as office bearers in the church. I think that a man biblically divorced uh, is given permission by his session, maybe not immediately, but uh, to our presbytery, uh, to marry. Uh, divorce is not the un- unpardonable sin. Divorce is a covenant. If the covenant's broken, uh, Paul says that uh, you're free. And then, but even here, and I'll go out on a limb, we maybe get some response to this. I think the PCA report might come this way, but a man unbiblically divorced who then has come to repentance has made proper restitution to a former family and wife, cannot go back to them perhaps because he married unbiblically or because they're married, um, but now has a faithful marriage. Uh, he's not an adulterer. He's repented of his sin. And if a church knows his background and thinks that now he is exhibiting the qualifications of managing his household well, I don't find any biblical reason for him not to serve. That'll get me in trouble. Well, I mean, that's that's the crux of the debate within reform circles is, right. it, you know, is he able to do it? And in some denominations go so far as to say that, um, you know, he shouldn't even be allowed to the to the Lord's Supper yeah. as long as he continues in that marriage. So When I came to Greenville Seminary, we had a, a, a man in that category, divorced, excommunicated, repented, remarried, sent to seminary by one Presbyterian denomination. When it came time for his licensure, another presbytery in the same denomination refused to license him. Because of those issues? Yeah. Another issue from the PC General Assembly, what was the reasoning behind not approving the overture that would have added the membership vow regarding the Trinity? There's been a number of instances where overtures have come in that uh, were in themselves biblical and not inconsistent with the confession. That for one reason or another, uh, don't pass. I think there's a certain fatigue in our denomination of amending the Book of Church order. 
Um, it's dangerous to have a loose leaf book of church order. And uh, there was even an attempt a few years ago to have a moratorium on amendments for so many years, but that didn't pass. Uh, and so I think in part, um, there's just a fatigue in regard to that. Others thought that the question was subsumed in what you are confessing with respect to Christ and salvation. Uh, I think it is a good, a good thing, and I wish that we had done it. The Orthodox Presbyterian have added that vow to their uh, subscription. And interestingly, it has um, been a very good determinant in terms of weeding out some error. And there's been a PCA church that's had a serious difficulty uh, in its membership with with the people not believing in the Trinity. So I wish it had passed, but I don't know that it's, it's not anybody's opposed to the doctrine. It's just they didn't want to put it into the membership vows. They didn't want to break with tradition, or they just didn't want to have to go through the hassle of amending the Book of Church Order again. And that was really the substance of the debate in the committee and on the floor as well. We have an anonymous question here. Are there situations when it is appropriate or permissible to divert all or part of one's tithe to a Christian ministry or church other than the church where you regularly attend? Specifically, if the only churches within driving distance are not substantially confessional and reformed. There's a great difference of opinion on this. There are those that take the commandment in Malachi, bring your tithe into the storehouse, uh, to uh, say that the tithe should always go through uh, the church and uh, offerings then, uh, that giving over and above your tithe can be given to other Christian institutions. I don't know that I'm completely committed to that. I in fact practice it fairly closely with what I give to the seminary, but uh, uh, you know, probably not 100%. Um, but this situation is a bit different then that um, if the person has joined this church, then they're going to have had some membership vows that would expect them to give some portion of their tithe uh, to that church. So it's a difference in regularly attending and being a member. Uh, so it might be that person kept their membership in another church when they lived in this place and they gave most of their time there and a little bit to the church they attend. I think in every worship service, if an offering's taken, the family should at least be making some contribution. We divide ours so that uh, uh, since our church has morning and evening offering, uh, we don't just do a check per month or just a check in the morning, but I think every Christian family through the head of the household should uh, Participate. The family participates in worship in that way. So something should be given. Uh, where even if I'm visiting a church, I'm going to give something. Now the tithe then though could go to the home church or to uh, a church uh, that would be consistent with the ministry. One would want their money spent on. So spent. I don't know that it's a hard and fast rule. I think if you're in a good confessional church, that surely the great majority of your tithe, particularly. Um, if you are, you know you have a very generous tithe, uh, majority could go there, but some could go elsewhere. 
or tithe if the, what we try to do is the minimum tithe and then since we give way above a tithe is put that then to missionaries and uh, seminary. Thank you for the question. I hope that's helpful. And Dr. Piper is working on a, a little booklet for Reformation Heritage Books on that precise issue on, uh, on the tithe and offerings. Our next question comes from Israel Quaresma of Belo Horizonte in Minas Gerais, Brazil. What does the Bible mean by the word rest in the fourth commandment? Is it referring only to physical rest? Is physical rest included? Or is the rest only in reference to our labor on the other six days? How can you apply this to our daily life? All right, let's uh, go look at Exodus chapter 20, fourth commandment, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you nor your son, your daughter, your male or female servant, your cattle, or the sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now the word uh, rested in the commandment is the word that is taken from the uh, seventh day of creation. And actually it's the word from which we get our word Sabbath. So to keep rest, to rest is to keep Sabbath. And God's pattern of rest himself uh, was, uh, or is the pattern then for us. He declared his work to be good, so he he, um, he contemplated his work. Uh, he uh, took great delight in it. He said it was good. Oh, he ceased his work first. It was accomplished. He then contemplated it, and then he was establishing the future promise of eternal rest. Um, and the classic by Bounds on the Sabbath, which is again available, he almost the entire first volume is arguing by looking at all instances in the uh, in the old testament rest sabbath rest is not physical sabbath rest is the soul resting in christ delighting in him fellowship communing with him in public and in private but that does not rule out physical rest you just need to know that's not what the commandment's about it's not a rest day physically but rather it is to do with um, spiritual resting. But the way that Confession of Faith puts it in 2118 is very useful. This Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord when men after due preparing of their hearts, ordering their common affairs beforehand to not only observe a holy rest, they clearly define the term for us, from their own works, words, and thoughts, about their worldly employments and recreations. So the, the holy rest is uh, not about recreation, but are also taken up in the whole time in public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. Now the catechisms make duties of necessity and mercy, they put it in terms of an exception, but I, want, I like what the confession does. So. There are things that are going to be necessary for proper Sabbath keeping that are physical and vocational and promote overall to the purpose of the day. So here's where physical rest comes in. There's nothing wrong with taking a nap on 
you know, people say, well, I take exception. I think we should take a nap. Well, it doesn't say you can't take a nap. It says that's, that can be both necessity and mercy. A mother with five young children, it's a necessity. Um, uh, it's a mercy for any of us that are uh, beaten up and, and worn out. It's a necessity. We want to come back to church alert uh, on the Lord's Day evening for, for the second uh, service. Um, and that holds true then for physical activity. Deacons are going to have to do work of, of uh, after a snowstorm, getting the church parking lot cleared and the sidewalks. People come in, their janitorial staff and people like that that make sure the building is operable. Uh, I would say they're staff, but they're in church. They're members there. Um, the, a doctor, a fireman, a lawyer, a, a lineman. So when the power was out over in North Carolina over the weekend, uh, it's a deed of necessity and mercy that linemen are out there repairing those lines. People easily could die uh, in that heat um, on the Lord's Day if they didn't get power going again. If I, I have a friend that their power went out, and in preparation for that, they cranked their air conditioner down to 60 degrees and after the power went out, the house stayed great for the first day and a half. And then on that uh, last day it was out, it began to get unbearable. And you couldn't open a window. It was worse outside. A lot of people die in that kind of heat. So uh, those are all things and pharmacists and, and, and everything. But that's part of Sabbath keeping. It's promoting the purposes of the day so that we are free to serve the Lord. The rest that we're hearing about today is, well, I want to go outside and um, go for a walk. Well, what's the purpose of the walk? If it's to meditate, to take your children out and uh, meditate, teach them the catechism, they got to burn up energy. Uh, we do it different ways. There might be one person that goes out and throws the ball with his son for 15 minutes to get rid of his energy. But talking to him, father to son, about important biblical truths as they do that uh, and that's a, it's a matter of conscience how we do that but it's never an end in itself the rest the physical rest and activity of the lord's day needs always to be focused on the purposes of the day that is an excellent question israel and it's really in the wheelhouse of greenville seminary's faculty since we have two men in our faculty who have actually written books on the lord's day and the keeping of it we now have a specific question dealing with uh, the Sabbath and and particularly observance of it during uh, national sporting events or international sporting events. Bill Johnson of Greenville, South Carolina, he's an elder at our church at Woodruff Road, asks, During the Beijing Olympics a couple of years ago, the athletes were playing on the first day of the week in the time zone where they were located, but the broadcast here in the States was airing live on the last day of the week in our time zones. In such a situation, would it be improper for Christians in the States to watch the competition? <laughs> that is an excellent question. Um, at the end of the day, I'm going to say it's a matter of conscience, of liberty. I wouldn't. I know that some Christians will record uh, sporting events that are uh, on the Lord's Day and watch them later in the week. Uh, I I can't in good conscience uh, do that. I will watch replays of, of films or things that are just simply put back up. But, um, you know, it's it's interesting the way it's put. Uh, the larger catechism uh, 
puts it in terms of our um, what we do for others with respect to the uh, Lord's Day. One eighteen. Why is the charge of keeping the Sabbath more specially directed to governors of families and other superiors? Charge of keeping the Sabbath more specially directed to governors of families and other superiors because they are bound not only to keep it themselves, but to see that it be observed by all those that are under their charge, and because they are prone oftentimes to hinder them by employments of their own. So I think that in principle, uh, we are contributing to their Sabbath breaking by the fact that we are, uh, while they're breaking the Sabbath, uh, involved in... Uh, and watching them, though it's not on our Sabbath. We're responsible to promote Sabbath-keeping for others as well, not just ourselves. I mean, that's exactly the rationale for why I do not like to go out to restaurants, or I don't go out to restaurants on the Lord's Day, because in so doing, I'm generating the economic demand for that person's labor on the Lord's Day, which seems like an equitable relation to your manservant and your maidservant in the community oh, it is. itself. It is. Uh, Dr. Piper, before we conclude, I just have a message for our listeners. We're in the middle of a bit of a campaign here at Greenville Seminary as we prepare for a number of changes. Between now and the end of September, we are in the midst of raising $200,000 to replenish our Enduring Reformation Fund after the summer months. We've raised some of that. We're still looking to raise about $100,000 between now and the end of the month. So please, if you're listening to this podcast and you appreciate the content that we put out there, you appreciate what our faculty are doing in service to the church, please consider making a gift in any amount. You can do so at gpts.edu slash donate. You can also send checks into the seminary. If you do it that way, we don't get hit with processing fees. But regardless, uh, every dollar that you give immediately goes to work and equipping preachers, pastors, and churchmen for Christ's kingdom. Dr. Piper, do you have anything to add to that appeal? It's just, Zach, it's, it's very important right now, um, where we are at this time of the year anyway, but then with the transition uh, coming uh, with the new president and with faculty additions that we need to make, it's very important that we raise uh, a good bit more money than we've been, been raising. Thank you for your consideration, and thank you for listening. Tune in for next time. We have more podcasts on the way. I'll be interviewing Dr. Shaw on his new book on Ecclesiastes in coming weeks, as well as seeking some more denominational debrief episodes as we seek to catch up on all of the activity from Napark and other confessionally reformed churches from around the world as, uh, as they've been meeting in their synods and assemblies over the last few months. Thank you again. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.